I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, March 28th, 2017. Coming up, Dr. Lisa McKenzie, a University of Colorado epidemiologist, will discuss her recently published health study. It suggests that a specific type of childhood cancer may be linked to living near oil and gas wells. And more broadly, we'll discuss with Dr. McKenzie the science of risk and why it's so difficult to prove definitive causal links, not just correlations. We begin with some of the recent look in science. There are many ways to capture and release energy, such as done with batteries. Figuring out how to efficiently store solar energy and then deliver that energy on demand has been a vexing challenge. Now researchers at Chalmers University of Technology in Sweden have found a new way to store and release solar energy. Call it liquid sun. By storing solar energy in a special chemical liquid, they can then transport the liquid and release the energy at another place in time. After release of the energy, the storage medium has a full recovery, allowing for recharging and reuse. This is yet another solution to the problem of how to store solar energy and deliver energy on demand. The solar energy is stored in the chemical bonds in the liquid and released as heat whenever it is needed. When it is combined with a solar water heating system, such as the water heating panels on rooftops of homes or businesses, it can lead to efficiencies of up to 80%. The system that can sustain many energy storage and release cycles with negligible degradation. The research appears in a paper titled Exploring the Potential of a Hybrid Device Combining Solar Water Heating and Molecular Solar Thermal Energy Storage. It was published in the March issue of the journal Energy and Environmental Science. Millions of acres of wildlife habitat are being lost to crop production, according to a new study. The study found a strong link between the location of corn ethanol refineries and the conversion of wildlife habitat and other land types into crop production. The study found that a total of more than 4 million acres had been converted to agriculture production within a 100-mile radius of ethanol plants. That's between 2008 and 2012, which was immediately after the passage of a federal mandate to blend corn-based ethanol and other renewable fuels into gasoline. The researchers assessed satellite imagery and land classification data from the U.S. Department of Agriculture to determine conversion rates from non-farmland into farmland in the years, during the years following the passage of the Federal Renewable Fuel Standard. Ben Larson, a senior manager of forestry and bioenergy for the National Wildlife Federation, authored this study along with researchers from the University of Minnesota Duluth and University of Wisconsin. Larson said that the data are a wake-up call that the Environmental Protection Agency needs to rethink its implementation of the renewable fuel standard. That study was published last week in the journal Environmental Research Letters. So, an atom calls the police and says, Somebody just stole my electron. The policeman replied, Are you sure? The atom replied, Yes, I'm positive. <laughs> well... You might have found that funny, but if you didn't, it's not my fault. Blame quantum mechanics. Your reaction to a pun or other kinds of jokes 
often is due to the ambiguity of the joke, but it has proved difficult to fully account for the complexity of humor or exactly why we find puns and jokes funny. For decades, researchers from a range of different fields have tried to explain the phenomenon of humor and what happens on a cognitive level in the moment when we get the joke. A recent paper suggests that an approach using the mathematical formalism of quantum theory might provide a working model. They hope that this quantum-inspired model of humor may succeed at a more nuanced modeling of the cognition of humor than previous attempts. This initial model was tested in a study where participants rated the funniness of verbal puns as well as the funniness of variants of these jokes, including, for example, the punchline on its own or the setup on its own. The results indicate that, apart from the delivery of information, something else is happening on a cognitive level that makes the joke as a whole funny, whereas its deconstructed components are not. Previous computational models of humor suggested that the funny element of a joke may be explained by a word's ability to hold two different meanings called bisocation and the existence of multiple but incompatible ways of interpreting a statement or situation called incongruity. During the buildup of the joke, we interpret the situation one way, and once the punchline comes, there is a shift in our understanding of the situation, which gives it a new meaning and creates the comical effect. However, the authors of the recent study argue that it is not the shift of meaning, but rather our ability to perceive both meanings simultaneously that makes the pun funny. So this is where a quantum approach might be able to account for the complexity of humor in a way that earlier models cannot, much like the situation of Schrodinger's cat, which is based on quantum formalism, where the cat is simultaneously alive and dead. Perhaps that means a joke can be simultaneously funny and not funny? This research appears in a paper titled toward a quantum theory of humor, and it was published in the journal Frontiers in Physics. I'm not kidding. There's a house on my block that's abandoned and cold The folks moved out of it a long time ago And they took all their things And they never came back It looks like it's haunted with the windows all Everyone calls it the house A house where nobody lives You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. If you live on the front range, you've probably seen lots of bobbing pump jacks, compressors, large groaning trucks, and other signs of oil and gas operations. Maybe just beyond your backyard, in fact. 
Last Thursday, the Boulder County Commissioners voted to approve new oil and gas regulations that are believed to be the most stringent of any city or country in Colorado. They're meant to protect residents in unincorporated parts of Boulder County from damaging effects of drilling and hydraulic fracturing. But the pressing question that keeps many Colorado residents, residents from around the country for that matter, and health experts up at night is this. Does living near an oil and gas well actually harm your health? A scientist in the forefront of exploring this question is Dr. Lisa McKenzie. She's a professor of epidemiology at the University of Colorado School of Public Health in Denver. Dr. McKenzie is the lead author on a recently published study that examines potential links between specific types of childhood cancers and nearby oil and gas activity. She and her colleagues did find some links, but the study was criticized by the state health department, which soon thereafter released a report suggesting that it is, for the most part, quite safe to live near wells. So to shed light on her research and why getting to the bottom of safety and risk questions is so tricky, Dr. McKenzie joins us on the phone from her office in Denver. Lisa, welcome to How on Earth. Uh, good morning, Susan. So um, let's start with just wh what prompted you to conduct this study? I know it's not your first related to oil and gas development, but why, why this one and why these specific types of cancer? Well, what prompted us to uh, conduct this study was uh, quite a long time ago I was talking with someone that uh, said that if um, there was an association between cancer and oil and gas development, we would see a lot more uh, children around these sites with leukemia. And that made me think, well, has anyone actually looked at this question? And that's one of the things that prompted this study, and also knowing that these sites do emit benzene, which is a carcinogen, uh, into the atmosphere. And benzene is one of several hydrocarbons emitted from the fossil fuel extraction, but is it the most carcinogenic or the most problematic one? Uh, benzene, it is true, benzene is emitted with the hydrocarbons that are emitted during fossil fuel extractions. Benzene is one of the few chemical compounds that we actually know is a human carcinogen. We're fairly confident in that information. Uh, other chemicals that are associated with uh, oil and gas extraction are not associated with oil and gas extraction. We're not as confident in uh, their ability to cause cancer. And this is well known and defined by EPA and American yes, Cancer. Yes, it's well known uh, internationally by uh, the Environmental Protection Agency and the Inter International Research Association on Cancer. And then why these blood-related cancers versus many other kinds of cancers? Well, that, that is the specific type of cancer that benzene is associated with. Right. And then just for a little more background context, maybe give listeners a sense of the scope of drilling here in Colorado, especially on the Front Range. I know you note in your study sort of the growth in uh, both population and oil and gas development. Okay. Well, there have been two areas in Colorado that in this century and the 21st century have seen very rapid growth in oil and gas development. And the first area was actually over in Garfield County that uh, went from just a few hundred wells to I think they have almost 10,000 wells now over in Garfield County. And that's in a, a relatively concentrated part of the county over on the western side of the county around Rifle and Parachute. Along the uh, front range, um, there's been oil and gas development uh, at least since the 
70s, and there was a boom in the 70s, and then things kind of tapered off. And uh, it, with the uh, advent of hydraulic fracturing um, and the discovery of the um, uh, oil in the Niobrea shale, there was another boom over on the Front Range. And um, on the Front Range, there's well over 28,000 oil and gas wells now. Well, 28,000 now relative mm-hmm. to, say, what, 10, uh, years I ago, actually I don't have that number in front of me of how many were there around the year 2000. But the, the it's been growing along the Front Range, not as dramatically as it was in the Peons Basin, but the number of wells has, um, I think, about doubled along the Front Range. And particularly sort of Erie, north of Longmont, areas of the, the highest concentration. Areas uh, that, well, the about. highest concentration of wells is actually around... Uh, Greeley in Platteville, so a little bit to the east of Interstate 25. Uh, there is there is development around the Erie and Longmont areas. It's just not quite as dense as what we see occurring uh, a little bit further east. And in your study, you were drawing from what state cancer registry, right, and from a particular geographic area, or is it all around the Front Range? Our study involved uh, any child that was diagnosed with cancer between 2001 and 2013, and those were children living in rural Colorado, so they would not have included any children in our metropolitan areas, and uh, metropolitan areas that we excluded uh, included Greeley, um, Boulder, um, Louisville, Longmont, and those areas. Boy, that itself is really... A fascinating point, sort of reflecting mm-hmm. how quickly the industry is moving. So if you're looking at this time period of 2001 to 2013, during which they were diagnosed, and given that mm-hmm. there's, what, a 10-year-ish latency period for cancer to develop, how, boy, how do, I guess for starters, how does the science keep up with Okay, so uh, one thing I'd like to say for, for these childhood cancers um, it can be up to a 10-year latency period, but the um, more likely latency period is in the on order of about a year. Oh, so quite quick. So, yeah, you can really quite catch quick it for within that decadal yes. or 12-year period. Mm-hmm. So just jumping right into, let's give us a snapshot of what did you find. So what we found was that uh, children that have been diagnosed with um, a very specific type of leukemia called acute lymphocytic leukemia were more likely to be living in the densest areas of oil and gas development. And then when we kind of um, focused in on children, uh, looked at some different age groups, we found that children that were 5 to 24 years, and we included that 24-year age range to take account in that 10-year lag because, you know, as supposed as a child at 14, you might not be you might not uh, have the cancer until you were 24. Right. So anyway, we found for that group that the children that were diagnosed with this type of leukemia were four times more likely to be living near an oil and gas well. We also looked at non-Hodgkin lymphoma, which is another um, it's a blood lymphoma, and we didn't see any associations for that type of cancer. For the same sort of childhood periods. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And was that surprising to you 
both you did with one and didn't with another, and then to the degree there is some linkage. Okay. Uh, well, it, I, I, since our hypothesis was that there might be an association between the oil and gas, uh, living near the oil and gas development and uh, leukemia, we weren't uh, surprised to see there was an association. We were a little surprised at the size of the association, that it was a, in that age group, that it was four times higher. Um, and the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, I, I don't, wasn't surprised by a negative finding. Yeah, and so, and the key culprits, and I think you suggested at the very beginning, the substances, really benzene, that's the most clearly known carcinogen, and then formaldehyde also and other hydrocarbons, right? Yes, yeah, so there are other carcinogens associated with the process. Um, there's a potential for something known as a polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon, um, more likely coming from the diesel exhaust from the um, generators used on the sites and uh, the many trucks that are used, particularly in the development of the well. Uh, but in addition to these carcinogens, um, in rural areas, there, there's another hypothesis which we haven't been able to explore yet, and that is when you have large population influxes into rural areas, there is a theory that that introduces um, a virus which some children have an abnormal response to that results in this leukemia, and that's called the rural population mixing theory. Hmm. And is that the case with this particular kind of leukemia? Yes, that is one of the hypotheses of what could be um, contributing to this type of leukemia, to acute lymphocytic leukemia. And this is something that would sort of be the next stage of your research? That is something we'd definitely like to explore in the next um, phase of our research, along with the um, potential uh, for the carcinogens, too. So we're going to take a little break for those who are just joining us now. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, and I'm host Susan Moran, and I'm talking with Dr. Lisa McKenzie. She's a professor of epidemiology at the University of Colorado's School of Public Health in Denver and has lead-authored a recent study linking or suggesting some links between living close to oil and gas development and certain childhood cancer. So we're discussing a recent study and, and more broadly, sort of the science of uncertainty. So, um, And I wanted to ask you that it was interesting timing that just days after your report came out last month, the State Department of Public Health and Environment came out fairly critical and with its own assessment showing sort of the lump sum is there's very little to no risk of living there. Maybe if you can address that and say, what, what do you think scientifically and perhaps otherwise suggests that discrepancy? Well, uh, first of all, the state health department study was very different than our study. They, what they released was a risk assessment, which is a study that is uh, lower on the tier of providing evidence for health effects. Basically, what a risk assessment does is they look at concentrations of various chemicals uh, from air sample, in this case from air samples that they had, and then they make predictions based on those concentrations of what the risk of health effects are. So that's, that is a study that they did. 
And our study, we were actually uh, looking at a specific health effect in the populations around these sites. So that's a, that's a big difference in study type. Our study is what is known as a registry-based case control study. And while it can't show that, um, a, that living near oil and gas cause these cancers, it can show um, the likelihood of uh, children with those cancers, that there were more children with those cancers living near those sites. So, in a sense, comparing apples to oranges, mm-hmm. even it's though comparing it's comparing apples, yeah, yeah, it, exactly. It's comparing apples to oranges, and risk assessments are usually in our health studies. One of the first steps we take a case control study is a further down the line of studies. So it it provides. Um, I, I don't want to use the word quality. It just provides um, more more comprehensive evidence. I would say, and but it did seem or at least some in the health department seem somewhat critical of your saying it's less conclusive than came across. What do you think accounts um, for that? I, 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 I cannot speak for the, for the health department or for any of their statements. You know, our study, we, we are very careful to say that this, uh, this suggests that there could be an association and that it also uh, provides provide some evidence that we really need to do further studies on this to understand why these uh, children with leukemia are more likely to be living near the oil and gas wells. Yeah, and it sort of raises this question of this um, tricky science of linkages and causation. So why? Yes. I mean, it seems a simple question, but obviously it's super Mm -hmm. complex. But Mm -hmm. why is it so hard to prove causation and not just correlations between exposure and disease, in this case, leukemia? Okay, so th- there are a couple reasons for that. And the first I'm going to just start with is um, when we're looking at things in the environment and people's exposures to environmental um, chemicals or, or other stressors, is we're, we're not working in a laboratory. We're working out there in the environment, and there's a lot of things we cannot control. Uh, there are other things that can cause um, or have been associated with these childhood leukemias that we could not control for in our study. For so, for example, it, it could be that the um, children living about around these sites also have something else in common that causes childhood leukemia that we did not account for. Uh, there could be some um, ge- genetic factor, or there could be uh, something with um, parental smoking in the home. Um, or something of that nature that we weren't able to account for that might explain these results. And then when you can't prove a causal link, how do you determine what dose or amount of exposure poses a significant enough risk, say, I know you're not in the policy realm, but Mm -hmm. say to warrant a change in drilling practices or regulations? So what does three parts per million or parts per billion, for that matter, mean to a parent or child living near a well? Well, there are um, the Environmental Protection Agency does have uh, screening risk levels for for carcinogens, and they're in the range of um, for benzene. They're um, in the range of one part per billion, and most most benzene concentrations just in the air in cities exceed that. Um, around the oil and gas sites, they can exceed that too. So um, it's it's so those are those levels you know down below one part per billion are the screening level for cancer i don't want to say safe level because 
for cancer, there is really no threshold or no no safe dose theoretically. Um, any dose is um, potentially harmful, but as they get smaller and smaller, the um, risk gets smaller and smaller. Yeah, so we just, I think, have time for one more. Okay. I think a lot of listeners are probably wondering, well, given, I mean, granite Boulder County, the commissioners just mm-hmm. sort of pass stricter regulations, mm-hmm. but there will be, no doubt, a flurry over the coming years of a lot more oil and gas activity here and mm-hmm. certainly surrounding areas further east and north. Um, what What's your confidence level that it's safer not to live near and how how near is near such activity so right now we we have not done studies to know uh what a safe distance from oil and gas wells would be there are a lot of things that would go into determining what that would be um it would have a lot to do with uh how many oil and gas wells are already around you and other sources of pollution are around you I would also um, urge people to to put this into context that uh, there are a lot of other sources of air pollution that we live with in our lives. Oil and gas is not the only thing out there. Uh, If uh, someone is contemplating moving, I would think you would want to be um, very careful about that and very careful about where you're moving to. Uh, But I would say with the oil and gas that is uh, coming up and happening, we do know that, that benzene is a carcinogen, that there are other possible um, toxics emitted. And so I think it is prudent to um, have regulations that control those emissions and try to limit them. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Lisa McKenzie. I really appreciate it. Okay, thank you. I, it was my pleasure to be here. And we'll be following more on this topic, both the science and, and policy of oil and gas development. That was Lisa McKenzie. She's a professor of epidemiology at the University of Colorado School of Public Health in Denver. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer and today's engineer is yours truly, Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by Susan Moran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Tom Waits. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker.